Chapter 5 of Langstroth on the Hive and the Honeybee. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Marcetich, August 2009, Alexandria, Virginia. Langstroth on the Hive and the Honeybee by L. L. Langstroth. Chapter 5 Propolis or Bee Glue. This substance is obtained by the bees from the resinous buds and limbs of trees, and when first gathered, it is usually of a bright golden color and is exceedingly sticky. The different kinds of poplars furnish a rich supply. The bees bring it on their thighs just as they do bee bread and I have caught them as they were entering with a load, and taken it from them. It adheres so firmly that it is difficult to remove it. Quote, Huber planted in spring some branches of the wild poplar, before the leaves were developed, and placed them in pots near his apiary, the bees alighting on them, separated the folds of the largest buds with their forceps, extracted the varnish in threads, and loaded with it, first one thigh, and then the other, for they convey it like pollen, transferring it by the first pair of legs to the second, by which it is lodged in the hollow of the third. End quote. The smell of the propolis is often precisely similar to that of the resin from the poplar, and chemical analysis proves the identity of these two substances. It is frequently gathered from the elder, horse chestnut, birch, and willow, and, as some think, from pines and other trees of the fir kind. I have often known bees to enter the shops where varnishing was being carried on, attracted evidently by the smell, and Bevan mentions the fact of their carrying off a composition of wax and turpentine, from trees to which it had been applied. Dr. Evans says that he has seen them collect the balsamic varnish which coats the young blossom buds of the hollyhock, and has known them to rest at least ten minutes on the same bud, molding the balsam with their forefeet and transferring it to the hinder legs, as described by Huber. Quote, with merry hum the willows copes they scale, the fir's dark pyramid, or poplar pale, scoop from the alder's leaf its oozy flood, or strip the chestnut's resin-coated bud, skim the light tear that nips Narcissus' ray, or round the hollyhock's hoar-fragrance play. Soon tempered to their will through eve's low beam, and linked in airy bands the viscous stream, they waft their nut-brown loads exulting home, that form a fretwork for the future comb, caulk every chink where rushing winds may roar, and seal the circling ramparts to the floor. End quote. Evans. A mixture of wax and propolis is used by the bees to strengthen the attachments of the combs to the top and sides of the hive and serves most admirably for this purpose, as it is much more adhesive than wax alone. If the combs, as soon as they are built, 
are not filled with honey or brood, they are beautifully varnished with a most delicate coating of this material, which adds exceedingly to their strength. But as this natural varnish impairs their delicate whiteness, they ought not to be allowed to remain in the surplus honey receptacles, accessible to the bees, unless when they are actively engaged in storing them with honey. The bees make a very liberal use of this substance to fill up all the crevices about their premises, and as the natural summer heat of the hive keeps it soft, the bee moth selects it as a proper place of deposit for her eggs. For this reason, the hive should be made of sound lumber, entirely free from cracks, and thoroughly painted on the inside as well as outside. When glass is used, there is no risk that the bee moth will find a place in which she can insert her ovipositor and lay her eggs. The corners of the hive, which the bees always fill with propolis, should have a melted mixture of three parts rosin and one part beeswax run into them, which remains hard during the hottest weather and bids defiance to the moth. The inside of the hive may be coated with the same mixture, put on hot with a brush. The bees find it difficult to gather the propolis, and equally so to remove it from their thighs, and to work so sticky a material. For this reason, it is doubly important to save them all unnecessary labor in amassing it. To men, time is money. To bees, it is honey, and all the arrangements of the hive should be such as to economize it to the very utmost. Propolis is sometimes put to a very curious use by the bees. Quote, a snail having crept into one of M. Remauer's hives early in the morning, after crawling about for some time, adhered by means of its own slime to one of the glass panes, the bees having discovered the snail, surrounded it and formed a border of propolis round the verge of its shell, and fastened it so securely to the glass that it became immovable. Quote. Quote, Forever closed the impenetrable door, it not avails that in his torpid veins, year after year, life's loitering spark remains. End quote. Evans. Quote, Maraldi, another eminent Apiarian, has related a somewhat similar instance. He states that a snail without a shell, or slug as it is called, has entered one of his hives, and that the bees, as soon as they observed it, stung it to death, after which, being unable to dislodge it, they covered it all over with an impervious coat of propolis. End quote. Quote, For soon in fearless ire their wonder lost, Spring fiercely from the comb the indignant host, Lay the pierced monster breathless on the ground, And clap in joy their victor pinions round, While all in vain concurrent numbers strive To heave the slime-girt giant from the hive, Sure not alone by force instinctive swayed, but blessed with reason's soul-directing aid. Alike in man or bee, they haste to pour, 
thick hardening as it falls, the flaky shower. Embalmed in shroud of glue the mummy lies, no worms invade, no foul miasmas rise. End quote. Evans. Quote, in these cases, who can withhold his admiration of the ingenuity and judgment of the bees? In the first case, a troublesome creature gained admission to the hive, which, from its unwieldiness, they could not remove, and which, from the impenetrability of its shell, they could not destroy. Here, then, their only recourse was to deprive it of locomotion, and to obviate putrefaction, both which objects they accomplished most skillfully and securely. And, as is usual with these sagacious creatures, at the least possible expense of labor and materials, they applied their cement, where alone it was required, round the verge of the shell. In the latter case, to obviate the evil of decay, by the total exclusion of air, they were obliged to be more lavish in the use of their embalming material, and to case over the slime-girt giant, so as to guard themselves from his noisome smell. What means more effectual could human wisdom have devised under similar circumstances? End quote. Quote, if in the insect season's twilight ray sheds on the darkling mind a doubtful day, plain is the steady light her instincts yield to point the road over life's unvaried field. If few these instincts to the destined goal, with surer course their straightened currents roll. End quote. Evans End of chapter 5